Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, can you hear me? Probably not. No, yes. Yes. Not very well. That's better. All right. The next thing to do is pour the water. That's the poet Alice Notley at the Writers' Institute in 1995. She's getting set up before a reading, and you in 2022 are still her audience. The reading is from Close to Me and Closer, The Language of Heaven. You know, either because you already know or because you're hearing it from me, that she's regarded as one of the greatest American poets. You know that she's associated with the New York School of Poetry, which isn't a literal school as much as an unofficial group of interlinked avant-garde people from the second half of the 20th century. The New York School, to me, is something associated with a kind of play and experiment, and it's in that spirit that I'm listening to Alice Notley with you. You, I think, have no idea what she's going to do next. Okay, because I'm producing this show, I obviously know what she'll do next, but it still throws me off balance. You're waiting for her to start. You sit there with other people waiting. And then, with no warning, no preamble after those introductory words you just heard from her, Alice Notley says this. I don't have to, because to be contrary, inexplicable is the light burst that will change us to go against the way of things right now. Break the rhythm. If you break it, keep doing that. No one dominates you. No past can. Don't walk straight. Don't think straight. Don't dance except to a sound in your own ear. This is a time for eccentricity. Break the patterns of the universe itself if you can. God doesn't mind. Change your breath, change your heartbeat, but above all, change your mind. Change the paths of the planets, but above all, change your thinking, change melody, change anything continuous. This is dangerous, of course. The stars are tinny with small alarms. Don't cry when you're supposed to. Don't react. Don't read anything or play right. Don't do right. Don't do wrong. Don't do right. Break all the unwritten laws. Destroy the song. I played that clip of Alice Notley's poetry reading for the poet Saeed Jones, whose new book, Alive at the End of the World, is out this fall from Coffeehouse Press. Chills. I love that. I mean, there's no one way, obviously, to be a poet, but also to be a poet in a space. And and I think it's important to, like, change it up and, and to know that there are, like, these different modes. And I think that's a great example of, you know, sometimes it's like the, the, the kind of, like, commanding, like someone who's not, like, talking for two minutes of explanation and context, but just, like, into it and very fierce. And that kind of spectacle is I think really seductive. And then that works in the, po- I mean, it's it's a declarative poem. It's a poem of, of declarations and instructions. So it kind of, the tone of someone being like, this is how it's going to be, does actually match the words. It works for an audience member because like, 
the emotional experience is actually perfectly in line with the intellectual experience. So poems can bring together emotions and thought in a way that resonates through an audience. And in this episode of the Writers' Institute, I'm talking to Saeed Jones about how poetry does this, how poetry lives in the world. Saeed Jones is the author of, again, Alive at the End of the World, and also the memoir, How We Fight for Our Lives, and another book of poetry, Prelude to Bruce. He's based in Columbus, Ohio, and has previously worked for BuzzFeed and hosted BuzzFeed's morning show AM to DM from 2017 to 2019. As that title suggests, he's also a really strong presence on social media. His work has appeared in The New Yorker and The New York Times, and in Kevin Young's anthology of African-American poetry for the Library of America. If you're, you're reading my book, you know, you're holding it in your hands. I'm not there with you. And so you're not getting to hear my voice and, you know, and the color of my timber and all of that. I think those readers have a lot more information, right? You know, like poetry um, is a very wild genre. Anything can happen, you know, in terms of form, subject matter, tone. And so I think on the page, the reader just has a lot more context. And of course, you know, a book is artfully constructed in terms of order and presentation. You know, my book, This New One, A Life at the End of the World, even has notes. So I think those readers have a context that's a bit, that makes for a very grounded reading experience for them. They don't feel like the work is coming at them like out of the blue. When you're doing a live reading as a poet, however, <laughs> your audience has almost no context. The words usually are not visually presented for them. You could be in all kinds of spaces, you know, us poets are used to reading in bookstores, sure, but also coffee shops, bars. You know, it could be after a drag show, for all I know. It could be in the middle of a cafeteria <laughs> at a high school, you know. And so um, when I'm doing a live reading, I, I think a lot about what do I need to do to create the context so that this can be engaging for that live audience. What have been some of your favorite venues or some of the most surprising venues. What leaps out? Well, earlier this summer, I got to do a reading at Tin House. Um, in, it's at Reed College in Portland, Oregon. And the amphitheater is just very beautiful. It's an outdoor amphitheater. It's by a river surrounded by trees. Birds are flying by. Joggers might be running by the trail during one of the readings. Like It's a really beautiful, natural space. And something else I love is that they have a great sound system. <laughs> so um, to read these poems, you know, it's not just that you know your words are really reaching the audience. You could, like, there were moments when you know, if I raised my volume and, you know, was really hitting a dramatic line, it was like I could hear my words shivering up the pine trees. Another memory that stands out, and this was a while ago, I think it was the Dodge Poetry Festival in 2014, 2015, and it was in, uh, you know, New Jersey. Um, and I went to graduate school at Rutgers Newark, so it was nice to, to be in that space. Um, but I remember I got to do a reading in a church, and I was reading from my first book, Prelude to Bruise. And I just think, as a Black queer poet, as someone who survived some really harrowing experiences regarding the church, regarding Christianity, it felt 
important and, and, and kind of liberating to be sitting on a stage with, I think I was with like Mark Doty and Richard Blanco and maybe one other poet. And we were all gay men. And I think we kind of almost made like a silent agreement to be as fierce as possible, not to hold back, you know, not to go to the safe poems, but to really recognize that we could have a church of our own. Is there something about poetry in particular that can kind of redefine a place? I think so, when it's good. (laughs) You know, I think when, for me, when poetry is really thriving, one of the many things that's making it thrive is, is rhythm, is a musicality. You know, and then combined with someone who can read their work well, yes, I do think it can act upon a space. And oh my goodness, don't let it be a reading with several people, you know, at the front of the room who are bringing contrasting but complementary colors to their work, you know. Absolutely. I mean, it can feel like a spell is being cast, you know, in that room. And and I've been in those spaces. It's special when it happens. And you know, because you don't want to leave. You find yourself kind of lingering well afterwards. Like we should, we should probably go to the bar or the restaurant, wherever we're supposed to go, you know, but you just want to stay in that room because it's almost like now it's, it's haunted by the color of, of the words. The poetic remaking of a place reminds me of other literary gatherings and other literary gatherings we've talked about in this series. The other day I saw an instance of writers making a kind of place, a kind of community. I went to the Albany Book Festival, organized by the New York State Writers Institute. I went actually to launch this podcast. You know, I went to some events, played the trailer of the podcast, and while I was there I noticed something close to what Jonathan Franzen described in episode two of this series. I'm not saying that literature is a religion, but I'm also not saying that it's not a religion. A lot of people I met there were believers in a way. There was a kind of belief in reading. We are book readers. I mean, we came to this event. We knew that we would end up walking out with books, okay? And we all have walked out with books because that's what we do. We acquire and read them. I wondered, is there something not just about the Writers' Institute, but about the place of Albany itself, the home of the Writers' Institute, something about that city that supports this kind of book belief? I mean, it's a nice enough place. Yeah, but there's also not a lot of other things. Now there is, but there used to be not a lot of other diversions before all this brouhaha. There were not a lot of things to go to in Albany. (laughs) I guess I didn't notice that. Well, I noticed it the minute I moved here. Okay, back to my conversation with Saeed Jones about how poetry in particular works in the world. Some of the best novelists are poets. Some of the best podcasters are poets. Poets can work (laughs) in so many different media and forms, and you yourself work in so many different media and forms. I'm curious how you see the poetic work emanate or inform work across media or across forms? One of my first experiences where I saw how my education, I have two degrees in poetry, how my education in poetry as a craft could serve me outside of the context of writing a poem was um, my first job in news. I I showed up in a newsroom and I didn't have a journalism degree, um, but I remember very quickly that you know, because poetry is, you know, the economy of language, it's, it's compressed, you know, a comma can feel so important um, in a poem if, if it's well deployed. I found it made me a very good editor. That that was the first time that I, I, I remember in a self-aware way, you know, being like, oh, wow, I'm, total, I'm totally accessing my skill set in this place that I initially felt like an outsider in. But then social media, I, I, I'm good at Twitter in part because... 
I've been on Twitter for so long. <laughs> I, I joined Twitter the summer of 2008, the summer before I started graduate school. So it's actually not a coincidence to me that I'm like, yeah, I, literally when I was studying the craft of poetry, I was also working on in this new medium. And initially I was so excited because, oh my gosh, only 140 characters? How exciting. You know, that's kind of like giving a poetry student, you know, an assignment to write a sonnet. And they go, oh, okay, you know, the compression, the restraint is, I think, thrilling to us. And part of the reason I enjoy Twitter and I think have had, you know, some energy there is because I've approached it almost as a poetic form. You know, what can I do in this compressed space? How can I keep it interesting? What's the verve I can bring to it? You know, I, I have an, an appreciation for the power of language, for the power of phrasing, of rhythm. And I know that, you know, it's, it matters what you are saying, sure, but also how you are saying, how you're delivering it. And that is what poetry celebrates. More Writers Institute is on the way in this show devoted to how poetry interacts with the world. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. We're back in the Writers' Institute with Saeed Jones, whose new book of poems, from which you're about to hear him read, is Alive at the End of the World. Um, I don't know if you had one of these experiences, but this was during, I'll say it was during year one of the pandemic. One of those moments where, like I was saying earlier, you you ask someone, how are you? And you didn't mean to, like, like, you know better than to ask that question, like four months into a pandemic, but the words leave your mouth and it's like, oh no. And so I had one of those experiences and wanted to write about it. Gravity. A few months and many deaths ago, I asked someone, how are you doing? And felt in the way her eyes fell, how I had failed her before I had even reached the end of my question. I've hurt many people, but it's the unintended wounds I claim now as children. They stand beside my bed in the dark each night, a row of injuries asking me to wake up because they can't sleep. It's a bright June morning now, and I have the windows open to let the quiet out and I'm making breakfast for my babies. Her eyes are still falling through the air of me. There's a lot of poets I've been listening to in the archives talking about rethinking things, reflecting on on failures, or reflecting on things that have different meanings as time goes on. This is John Ashbery in 2001. Mm. By the end of the poem, it's a very short poem. He's sort of doubting, rethinking, reframing things. Uh, the person that's called This Room. The room I entered was a dream of this room. Truly all those feet on the sofa were mine. 
the oval portrait of a dog was me at an early age. Something shows, something is hushed up. We had macaroni for lunch every day, except Sunday, when a small quail was induced to be served to us. Why do I tell you these things? You are not even here. It's that turn at the end. <laughs> Why do I tell you these things? You are not even here. Yeah. There's this sudden absence just that just shakes up everything that you've been sort of mulling right. over or experiencing. Yeah. I mean, I think that is the gift of, of poetry's earnestness. You know, all of us, and certainly this is not just, just true for poets, you know, we, we go about our days and then you say something that you just didn't quite mean to say, or like in that, you know, it's almost like the speaker's kind of admitting something and then has to acknowledge that there's actually a loss that he's grappling with, that he, he didn't expect that that's what he was in relationship to. And that's a very common human experience, but like what a gift that like poets, we're like, oh, okay, we'll dive in on that. <laughs> so instead of just like letting it go or letting it be something that, um, you know, those interactions, because I really, I mean, I felt terrible. I felt terrible. And I was like, oh, you don't have to like be like unproductively haunted by an unfortunate moment. You can face it on the page and, and turn it into what it becomes, you know, an opportunity for connection. I'm going to address you, the listener, for a moment about uh, poetry. Uh, um... So there's this sense that poets can recover something from a bad situation, whether that's in This Room by John Ashbery or Gravity by Saeed Jones. And reckonings in language can, as we've been discussing already, do something. John Ashbery telling us about this room contributes something to this very room. I'm talking about the room around you right now. I'm going to assume that you're in a room. I grant that you might not be. Oh man. If nothing else, we're in a kind of poetic room right now. And I don't know what the poetry itself is doing to that room, that place around you as you're listening to this. I don't really know, but it's clearly doing something. You're thinking about that room, whether it's a metaphorical room or literally the room around you. You're thinking about the people and things that are or aren't there. Your attention has been shifted one way or another. And here's something else. The room in which John Ashbery read, this room was an incredibly crowded recital hall full of people gathered to see Kurt Vonnegut along with John Ashbery, as they were acknowledged state poet and state author for New York. And so in that case, it was a room that was devoted to the enormity of the state, the enormity of New York, retrained in Ashbery's poem, to a room of macaroni and doubt. With Saeed Jones, I wanted to talk about the power of poetry in the world, especially in the places where he's worked and written. How have you like sort of navigated these different places? What have you learned from these different places? And in turn, what have you given to these different places, whether it's BuzzFeed or or Columbus or New York? This is fun because it's it's helping me think about poetry as as a worldview, almost as a, as a life philosophy. And it is. Poetry is very earnest. As a reader, I need to be intentional as to when I am ready to just pick up a book of poems, you know, off a bookshelf or in a store and, and to receive that. Because if I'm distracted or if I'm cynical or just not there, the earnestness, I can't. <laughs> it's like too much. You know, poetry is just fiercely committed to this, like, 
the truth. And I have found, as someone who, you're right, I mean, I think of myself as, as a journeyman. I've, I've been in a lot of different spaces, different careers, but... But it's always me. I'm the one, I'm the common denominator, you know, whether it's stepping into a newsroom and, and learning how to navigate that space or navigating a digital space. And I think of Twitter, for better or worse, as a kind of public square. And I think that's a lot of why it's so bad. <laughs> I'm like, look what's going on in the real public. Did you think the digital public square would somehow be better? Or, you know, the space of a page, I think... I am absolutely myself, for better or worse. You're not going to get a different Saeed in different contexts. Initially, I thought that was a liability, and maybe it was. <laughs> but I found that people have come to appreciate it. They know. If Saeed Jones is attached to something, they know they're getting me. We can feel when someone feels like the truth. And I think it's like kind of calming and or or even like seductive and, and you want to move toward it. So I don't know. I think I just as as a poet, you know, in the way that earlier in my career when I was emerging writer, like I mentioned earlier, you know, it was like you show up at a open mic in some dingy dive bar, you know, there are 40 people performing. <laughs> a mime went before you, and who knows what's going after you. It might be like an offensive stand-up comic. But when you stand up, you have to demonstrate that you are who you are, and people would do well to connect with you, you know? And, and you hone that skill, and it's incredibly uncomfortable. And then you do it again, and then you go to the coffee shop, and then, you know, like, I think that learning how to be myself in literal physical spaces, I think is perhaps translated to, I would hope, me learning how to be my authentic self in metaphorical and digital spaces too. I'm really interested in this continuity you're describing between what, what a reader is looking for and what a poet does provide. It's this earnestness I'd never thought about before, but it's true. When you pick up a book to read it, when you pick up a poem to read it, you, you never do it you know, sarcastically, like, oh, look at me, I'm going to read a book. Right. <laughs> and I hadn't thought about that as something that I was also seeking from the writer in return. That's why literary magazines, <laughs> I think, are actually pretty tricky for poets. <laughs> um, because, you know, or just, you know, whether, or, you know, having your poem in the New Yorker or the New York Times, because you're in a very different context. You're like... <laughs> You're, you know, if, if you're in a, even if you're in a literary magazine, it's just one or two pieces of your work. There's no context. It might have followed a short story. It might follow an essay, even if there are other poems. You know, it could be a poem in translation from Korean. You know, like there's there's just like a lot going on. I find it's it's kind of tricky. How am I going to, you know, what what is the poem that works in this specific space? It can't be a poem that needs a lot of explanation. Like, I don't know. I think there's interesting constraints. And then, you know, when poetry pops up in other mediums, you know, a magazine like The New Yorker or something, I'm always just like, what's it like when someone's just read like a long form article on the removal from Afghanistan and then they turn the page? It's like, what? You know, like, and now here's a poem from Patricia Smith. You know, it's, <laughs> I just think that, you know, and, and maybe people love that. I mean, maybe that's part of the delight of like, oh, wow, this poem that I wasn't expecting hit me in a different way. I think by the time you've picked up a book of poems, you know, there is already some kind of investment 
It's like it's like someone who buys a ticket to go see a play. Like there's a social contract there. Like you didn't just wander into the theater and make it to your seat in row seven. Like you you have some understanding that some magic is at play, and that would be very different than if you were just walking down the street and someone just starts performing a random monologue from Long Day's Journey and Tonight. You'd be like, what is go- <laughs> what's going on? You had the element of surprise, I guess, in The New Yorker. You catch them off guard, and that, that can do something. But otherwise, it, it can be tricky. For me, when I am submitting work to those kinds of spaces, I try to think about the material I have. That, Like, for me, generally, like in The New Yorker, the poems I've published have been about grief or have been about, like, a, a very, like just from the, like, you know, everything I think is about grief <laughs> in, in the end, but in a very direct way way I try to think about, you know, even just from the title or poem's opening lines, the reader whose eye is scanning and they have the option to just very quickly turn the page and go to the next article or cartoon, like what is the thing where they go, oh, I get that. Okay, I can work with that, you know, as opposed to something more lyrical, abstract, or with like a lot of context about a obscure historical figure. Not that poets are like, marketers (laughs) but because poetry is free of capitalism it has to prove its worth to the audience because sometimes it's a reader sometimes it might be an audience member every time we don't get to say well this is going to make you look 10 years younger or (laughs) you know listen to this listen to this poem and your boss will give you a raise tomorrow or whatever poetry is just like we're going to honor your humanity. We're going to deepen your relationship to yourself, which I think that's valuable, but (laughs) I think poets have learned to kind of hone that skill for both in the framing of the poems themselves, in the banter, which I think is really important for live performances, and helping guide the reader or the audience member to themselves. I, I want to talk a little bit more about grief, which, as you mentioned, you write a lot about. And yeah, how much time you got? That's a whole nother, That's a whole podcast. <laughs> like you said, it, it connects to everything. It also connects really private, the most private experience imaginable with public life, with right. public mourning, with public losses. One of the early personal revelations I had, and this was just a few months after my mother died. This was um, 2011. I was teaching high school at the time, and I was, I mean, a mess. I was, it's actually impressive that I was able to finish the school year. Um, I remember I could make it through the teaching, but it was like the moment my kids left the room, you know, and I was like left alone to like grade papers or do whatever, you know, I would just fall apart. I, I could really only function as their mentor or caregiver. I couldn't be a person. I remember being left alone. I had to go get some lunch and I went to a diner nearby and as I was waiting for my food I remember just like looking around and thinking about like okay like I know I'm young I mean I was 25 which I think is you know it's really hard to lose a parent you know um, as a young person but I remember like okay I've lost a parent many people lose parents like this is a thing that happens this is actually a very common experience and if it's not a parent it's someone we're all going to lose someone and here I am standing in this diner and I feel like I can barely function and I remember looking at the woman working the register and then I remember I'll never forget like a bus pulled up to the bus stop out and I was like wait a minute wait a damn minute you mean to tell me this really common phenomenon where you you feel like dying 
Like making yourself eat will be one of the greatest accomplishments of your day because you're so depressed. You mean to tell me that there are bus drivers and people working the register and construction workers and, you know, people all over going through this? <laughs> like we're all just like supposed to function. In retrospect, it's so obvious, but I remember being startled one that I was suddenly now connected in a truly universal experience, but also because of our country and our culture's relationship to grief, that it's this public secret. You know, I was back at work less than two weeks after my mother's funeral, and I was very fortunate to even be able to have that much time off. Many people in this country aren't able, able to, you know, take bereavement off, and you just have to get back to it. And then in this pandemic where millions of people have died, there's a line um, in my new book where I say, like, America killed me, and then told me, get back to work. I'm so drawn to grief not just as a personal experience, but you're right, the way it connects the personal and the political, but also the private, the private anguish with this collective phenomenon, because, you know, energy cannot be created nor destroyed. If we are a nation of privately grieving, anguished people, then that doesn't stop the moment we leave our apartments and homes, right? That That is going to inform everything else we're doing. And shocker, look at us. <laughs> we're a mess. America is bad at grief. Maybe it's just capitalism. Like, you you know, people, people die far too frequently for us to allow their loved ones to mourn in an organic um, unrushed way. That is, that's not good. I mean, you, you know, I mean, even with the pandemic, it was like, set aside grief for a second, just health. You know, it's very clear that when it comes to issues of public health, the emphasis is usually on, well, how do we get people back to work and back to spending money? Grief, at least speaking for myself, it slows you down. It's a very slow, it's similar to depression, but not as same. It's a very slow, non-linear experience in our country, which is very go, 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 particularly, I would say, you know, in this modern moment, it's almost like we're all our own marketers. And I would say it's not just social media. Social media is one manifestation of it, of like, show me the great pictures from your vacation. But I would argue that that's kind of true, you know, throughout. I mean, most Americans intuitively understand that when someone says, hey, how are you? They don't actually want you to answer that question. <laughs> it's a nicety, you know, and you're supposed to go, oh, I'm fine, or whatever quick little phrase, and then you move on. They're not asking you to sit there and, like, unspool all of your interiority. Grief is this, like, it's like an ocean of an interior. Like, there's so much going on. I remember early on when my mom passed away and I, I was trying to kind of give myself a, like, a, it's funny you mentioned space earlier. I was trying to give myself, myself like a geography to navigate it emotionally because it was just too much and I would get overwhelmed. And I remember early on being like, okay, it's a river. It's a river. Somehow you were walking through the woods and you tripped and you ended up in a riverside. Hate to say it, but that's what it is. And now you're being like cast downstream. 
you know, there are whitewater rapids and there are bends or whatever, but it's confined and eventually you will get to a point where you can get to the shore. And that would kind of help me like get to the next morning or in those first few months in particular. But like a few years into grief, I was like, this ain't no river, it's an ocean. It is vast. I can't, I can't see where it begins and ends. And that was just me. Maybe everyone else doesn't feel that way. You know, I think every grief is also different. But to have that kind of experience, to be going through that kind of emotional experience, to feel like you are lost in an ocean of memories and of emotions, to be made to feel that you can't talk about it, that you can't acknowledge it, that you, that the best thing you could do is just get back to work and make money for other people is really disturbing and very common. You know, it's unfortunately what this country and this economy demands of us. And, and it's something that I find, you know, really troubling. Coming up, the poet Yusef Komenyaka and more with Saeed Jones. We're back in the Writers' Institute, and we've been hearing from Saeed Jones about, among other things, how poetry relates to other ways of communicating and participating in the world. In his case, that's included work in journalism, which is especially interesting to me because the New York State Writers' Institute was itself founded by a novelist who's also been a journalist. I'm talking about William Kennedy, author of Ironweed, who early in his career wrote for the Albany Times Union. He described to me how journalistic thinking informed a kind of expansive thinking that's also in his fiction. When you become a journalist, you you know you, you sort of take an oath without ever going through any formality of such a thing. You try to be objective and you try to tell the truth about what you're reporting on. You don't fake it. But everything is exists on an unspoken moral plane when you're having a conversation with a politician. It, it's very difficult now. It, it's changed with Trump. We're now talking about him telling lies, and you, you can actually say that. I mean, he, he lied when he was talking to me because that's what he does. I mean, and that's... We could never say that when I was growing up. I mean, you could... You had to declare equal time for his his lies and uh, sort of balance it and try to, you know, get your point of view across in spite of what he was saying. And I would say that that, that unspoken code that uh, that you live by as a, as a journalist, and, and I, that I transpose that into fiction in the same way. You do terribly outlandish things in fiction, and you have people who lie all the time, and and you are not necessarily uh, speaking out against it. It's not like you're writing to support the catechism. You're you're writing uh, because this is the way it is in the world. It's supposed to be on a moral plane. William Kennedy here is describing a moral complexity that brings you closer to reality or closer to some truth. The poet Yusef Komenyaka, reading at the Writers' Institute in 2001, read a poem with a similar drive toward more complicated circumstances, beyond simple questions, and obvious kinds of communication, taking you into some more profound recognition. I'm going to try and, and read a different kind of poem. I've spent a lot of time in Sydney, Australia, 
The first place I read in Sydney is a place called um, Harold Park Hotel. And this is dedicated to the performance poets at Harold Park Hotel. The need gotta be so deep words can answer simple questions all night long. Notes stumble off the tongue and color the air indigo. So deep fragments of gut and flesh cling to the song. You gotta get into it so deep salt crystallizes on eyelashes. The need gotta be so deep you can bump up ghosts and not feel broken. To you, you are no more than a half ounce of gold in painful brightness. You gotta get into it blow that saxophone. So deep all the sex and dope in this world can erase your need to howl against the sky. The need gotta be so deep you just can't wiggle your hips and rise up out of chaos in the cosmos, motor man in the pepper pot. You gotta get hooked into every hungry groove. So deep the bomb locked in rust opens like a fist. And to it, and to it, so deep rhythm is pre-memory. The need gotta be basic animal need to see and know the terror. We are made of honey, cause if you wanna dance this boogie, you're ready to let the devil use your head for a drum. So that was a poem prompted by Sydney, Australia. It's curious to me, that relationship between place and literary invention. Talking with the poet Saeed Jones in 2022, I wanted to know about his own experiences of places. You know, I, I lived in the New York area for about a decade. And then I settled on Columbus, Ohio. I moved here in 2019. And I mean, to be clear, for, for people who, who aren't familiar with Ohio, Columbus is, is a city of a million people. So it's, <laughs> I, I, it's, I definitely didn't like move to the woods. Um, and in fact, that was kind of the point. I was like, I, I know I'm a city person. I like being around people. I need culture. I need energy. I need diversity. But I need it on, on like a different scale than New York. And I remember realizing that when I was in New York, I wasn't daydreaming. I very rarely was daydreaming in New York. I feel like in New York, you need all your wits about you. You know, you're not just like, la la la, walking down the street. You're like very focused <laughs> on where you're going, what's going on around you. You're like hyper aware kind of at all times. And then, you know, at the end of the day, you get home and you're just like exhausted. There's not a lot left over in your bandwidth for, for that rich interiority whether you're a grieving person or just a poet, you know, is is really important to embrace. And here in Columbus, like, walking down the street is just walking down the street. It's, it's, it, it doesn't feel like I'm, you know, at an Olympic <laughs> qualifying trial <laughs> or anything, you know, and the city's very green. There are a lot of parks. I wake up and I look out my window and all I see is sky, even though I'm in actually, you know, like an apartment building. It's been freeing for me. And also, it's more affordable here. Part of the other reason that in New York I realized I was so hyper-aware is that it was so expensive. It was so expensive. Like, when I left New York, I was working a high-profile job. I was making six figures. On paper, everything was perfect. You know what I mean? And I was exhausted because I was always very aware of, like, maintaining that status required near perfection in terms of productivity. I don't know about you, but I just, I can't do that. I can't do that all the time. I can't do that for the rest of my life. And I don't want to. I like living in a place that's more affordable, where I can take a break if I need to. I can say no to an opportunity 
that's not right for me if I need to. Because in New York, that was the other thing. I realized I would say yes to damn near anything <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> because it's both competitive and, you know, every dollar counts. Living, you know, in a more sustainable, affordable place and community, um, it has acted upon my kind of emotional self, too. And I mean, and, and to be fair, you know, my boyfriend lives in New York. I'm there once a month, so I get, I get it. <laughs> and then, I, and then I'm ready to come home. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's you know, and it's interesting because kind of like we started this conversation talking about poetry, and then all the other spaces I've gone into and, and taken that ethos, that earnestness, that spirit with me, and thus I would like to think thrived in these different spaces. I think New York itself is a great example of that. You know, I think as an emerging artist, um, particularly as someone, you know, who arrived, what, like in 2008, right in the middle of the recession, you know, it was a wonderful crucible. It is incredible to have the opportunity to be literally surrounded by artists, you know, in all of these different forms, to be surrounded by industries and and your access to things. I mean, the, 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 the range of cultural experiences you can have in 24 hours in New York City, it, it's very hard to replicate. Um, the diversity of the city I loved and, you know... Part of the reason I'll always have a relationship with New York City is, again, I lived there for a really important 10 years of my life, you know, my my early 20s into my 30s. And so I, I know that I have, you know, a deep bench of friends, mentors, chosen family members, you know, that are there. And so that's really important to me. Now in 2022, I find that I go to New York City and I have, I, I do everything. <laughs> My boyfriend and I, like we say, you know, he's, he, lo- he loves food. He loves restaurants. And so we go to fabulous restaurants and cultural experiences. We're seeing friends. We're inviting friends. We do everything. And I'm walking around and I'm taking pictures. And my head is full of ideas. And then I leave. I have to leave in order to make something of all of that inspiration. I think for me, the challenge in New York, and also it's probably a personality type, but um, the challenge for me in New York City is that I can't access that quiet that I need to do something with all of the culture. And it's it's just like kind of too much and it never stops. You know what I mean? Um, it's kind of like even here, I love, you know, when I'm working on a book, I prefer to wake up early in the morning and start writing before there are any excuses to really be on my phone or texting with people. It's like, if I know that there are other things I could be doing, I want to be out there doing them. And that's a problem in New York City for a writer. <laughs> I'm I'm curious about how you would describe the literary community or communities you found, not just in New York. Oh, that's interesting. Um, I do feel like I have different communities and, and, and different spaces. I mean, I think, here's what I would say. Community is, is a little too overwhelming of a framework for me. But um, I try to be very aware of, like, mentors. I think it's important to have your peers. And then also, I think, to have some kind of relationship with emerging artists and writers. And so here in Columbus, I am so delighted that I have a friend like Maggie Smith, a poet, 
who's, you know, she's published several incredible books of poems and she has a memoir coming out and, you know, she's accomplished. She she knows her stuff. She's a badass, to be clear. And it's really great that she and I can just hang out. And often we're not even talking about writing. It's about the life, you know, it's it's about the living, but it's it's really good and important to have someone that you can just like be candid with about what you're dealing with. Even if you're just like, you know, was the pay rate for that last speaking opportunity? You know what I mean? Like that kind of nuts and bolts kind of stuff. But just having someone who's a poet in the world, just like you, and you're not even talking about that. You're just talking about summer plans with her kids and over drinks. You know what I mean? Like just vibing and being with your people. I, I think that's really grounding. And this isn't just true for poetry. Like writing is a very... It's, I don't think it's. I don't think of it as lonely. I'm a pretty independent person, but it is an isolated, you know, experience. You you have to be away from people and kind of in your head for long stretches of time. And I think for me, the beginning of making my way back to shore <laughs> is checking in with a friend or peer just to hang out just a vibe um, because they get it. They get what I'm coming back from. They are coming back from that space too. And we can kind of row to shore together to be with like the rest of humanity. <laughs> and then, yeah, community. I mean, you know, mentors and, and it, you know, um, who am I thinking of? Doug Powell. He writes me beautiful letters. I text him because I'm millennial. And I can't. <laughs> but he writes me beautiful letters. And when I was working on this last book, I would text him screenshots of drafts of the poems and we would talk and he would help me. And it's not minuscule, but even if it was just encouragement, but, or, you know, figuring out that last line or just like, I know this is what I want to be writing about, but I can't figure out if this is how, you know, those, those conversations. And I just, it's the honor of my life to be able to access someone's incredible lips, D.A. Powell. Yeah. So I don't know. I think that, I guess that's how I, I think of, community is like recognizing that it's and I'm, I'm sure there are more levels but as a writer as an artist it has to exist kind of on those different tiers like your mentors your peers your colleagues and then also you know like emerging artists who you know i'm hanging out with and checking in on i want to ask now about your podcast that you just launched oh yeah it's called vibe check and in the title is the word vibe. You've mentioned vibing. That's a that's a word that has a lot of purchase on our generation. So it's a weekly news and culture podcast. You can you know get get it wherever you get your podcast normally. And I launched it with my friends Sam Sander Sam Sanders and Zach Stafford. Zach is a producer, editor, journalist. Sam is an incredible audio journalist who I've just admired and delighted in his work for years now. Uh, Zach and I have been friends for for a while now. I feel like six or seven years. But Sam um, and I became friends um, three or four years ago after he had me on his show, on his show on NPR um, as a guest to talk about my memoir. And every good interview doesn't turn into a friendship. Like that's certainly not like an expectation I go into interviews with. That's not, that's not sustainable, right? But But it was one of those things where it just hit off. Like there were just moments where it's difficult to explain, but where I, w- I was able to feel absolutely at ease in this very 
uneasy space, which is like doing a high profile interview. It's kind of scary. You're, you're, I'm often worried of like messing up and all of that kind of stuff, but it just, we just connected. It was the vibe. And so we ended up starting a group text a few years ago and it's just been such an important space for us, especially over the course of the pandemic, which, you know, as it's true for literally every person on this planet has inflamed all kinds of ongoing questions and tensions and everything. And, and I think it's just been really a joy to have this little circle of two other friends who are also black gay men in their thirties, you know, where we can just come together and, and, you know, we're laughing, we're sharing links and all that other kind of stuff. But also we were like always just being very transparent about like wanting to check in on each other. And then about a year ago, we were like, we could do something with this. Like, <laughs> because I think and the reason I think vibe check is like such a great and apt title is we are all aware that it's not just about what is happening right now in this country, whether it's the news, the headlines, the politics, whatever. We need to address how it all feels, you know, how it's acting upon us. Your question um, earlier where you were like, you know, how poetry can act upon a space and seemingly like change the dynamics of a room. That's the vibe. That's what it is. You know what I mean? And and that can be productive. It can be toxic. It can be, in, you know, it can, it, can, it can hit you in all kinds of ways. But I found, you know, both because to me, it feels like news and culture, even memes. I'm like, the burnout rate for memes is crazy. You know, you see a meme on Monday and by Friday, people are like, that's so old. I'm sick of it. I don't never want to, you know, it's just like, what? <laughs> in 2005, you'd be stuck with the same like frog meme for like six years, you know? <laughs> um, so like, you know, everything's going this like very quickly. It's overwhelming. It's perilous. We have literal fascism, you know, kind of breathing down our necks. And so I think when you're kind of, fending off all that information and trying to process it, how it all feels can get left out. And so I've been just really delighted, you know, working on them and developing the podcast and then now finally launching it, that I hope it's like a space. I hope people feel safe and not in like a lazy way, but like safe to be challenged, safe to be pushed. You know, I, I enjoy that so often my conversations with Sam and Zach. We have ideas, but we are also trying to embrace the art of conversation and of dialogue and, you know, are willing to have our minds changed and are willing to say, huh, I guess I was wrong. I don't know about you, but I don't feel like we have a lot of that in media right now. Like it feels very competitive and very like, um, trying to save face. Like no one wants to blink. And, and instead like everyone's trying to kind of outdo one another and so instead of like just having exchanges and dialogues and interactions everything feels like a weird one-upmanship that i think unfortunately is not just happening in media i think it's kind of manifesting in interpersonal interactions as well so we're here to save america you're welcome <laughs> that is our mission with this podcast <laughs> saeed jones thank you so much for taking the time to answer these questions Thank you for your questions. I enjoyed this. This was great. You got me to to think about poetry as a life philosophy, which I've got to tell you, I haven't done in at least a minute. So. <laughs> <laughs> and thank you for listening to the Writers Institute, the show from the New York State Writers Institute and Lit Hub. 
The utmost thanks, as always, to William Kennedy, founder of the Writers' Institute. And for this episode, of course, thanks especially to Saeed Jones, whose new book is Alive at the End of the World, and whose new podcast with Sam Sanders and Zach Stafford is Vibe Check. I'm Adam Coleman. Thanks again.